0: Good morning, so yes, next Sunday is the Houston Marathon, and if you're like us, you can walk to church. We just live over there, so easy now. If you're coming in from the Southwest, I know from habit you can take the Southwest Freeway and get off at the main exit, and no problem with the marathon at all, so there are ways to get here without being troubled by the marathon, so. It's just one of those things we endure once a year. If you were not here yesterday, you were not here yesterday. That's all I know. You missed a great, great program. Uh, last night, Sherry read to me the poem that she wrote yesterday during the workshop that we had. And it was just beautiful. And I was going to read bring mine and read it today, and I left it by the coffee maker. So maybe next Sunday I can do that pam pool free Hale, anybody else who is here who is here who served on the committee that made this weekend happen would you stand up so that we can acknowledge you whoever you are volunteer in whatever position thank you and two people that i did not recognize that were here all day yesterday and are back there now setting up additional chairs is um uh, Lauren Cross and Joshua Rodke, those are the two people who make sure that you who are on the live stream can see this. And they run our technical work with the help of Tim Leatherwood and John Watson. And I want to acknowledge Lauren and uh, Joshua. <clears throat> Especially Lauren feeling that I needed a microphone at the end of the day yesterday. So, um, we began uh, traditionally in this class in silence. So... Do what you need to do to be here, just put your feet on the floor, close your eyes if that's helpful, just to be present, take a deep breath. And uh, if you were here yesterday, you know that Jan Phillips talked about, among many other things, how that God is not out there, it's not useful maybe sometimes even to use that word. But that sacred mystery is right here and um, that sacred mystery is the reality in which we live and it is the reality which seeks to find expression through how we live. So when I offer this uh, Celtic uh, prayer that I've adopted, adapted to, uh, it's not to ask some external being to be here. It is to rather um, ask that our awareness be opened, that we be aware. So next Sunday, when we return to more normal things and I resume teaching, um, which will be the first time since the 18th of December, the the theme is going to be the transformational path of awareness. And um, just being aware is harder than we think. But anyway, May grace be in our heads and in our thinking. Grace be in our eyes and in our seeing. Grace be in our ears and in our hearing. Grace be in our mouths and in our speaking. Grace be in our hearts and in our understanding. And grace be in our ends and at our departing. One of the things that we were invited to do yesterday is to be aware of those times and moments in which that grace or mystery um, is really present in our lives. And I don't know about those of you who were present yesterday, but I felt that all day and was so grateful. I am grateful that um, synchronicity uh, brought Grace Phillips into my life. Uh, I have loved reading her work, and I have loved, absolutely loved, and been energized by her physical presence and teaching. And I'm so grateful that she is back here again today to be with us. Grace Phillips, please.
1: Grace come. Phillips, listen. To <laughs> me. I mean Jan Phillips. I forgot my name. Already. Jan Phillips.
0: I'm sorry, <laughs> but it is Grace. Name. You are Grace. Thank you for being here. I love you. Love you too,
1: Fred. I was gonna make you work today, but I changed my mind at the last minute because, well, first let me say this. Hi to everyone out there in your jammies. Um, Some of you have the question, how do we create the church of the future? How do we create the church that's appropriate for these times and it's only taken me a day and a half to recognize this is it. You are the church that's appropriate for these times. You have figured out how to do it and your community is so strong and supportive and I've been hanging out with different groups of people, but there is no shortage of anything that one would need on your journey. All you have to do is look around and see. You're an amazing group of creative, spiritual people. So I'm honored and privileged to be in your presence Thank you, Fred. <laughs> Kabir once said, he's a mystic poet. If you haven't experienced it, it's not true. And it's kind of a tricky phrase. But I think he was pointing to that. We learn what we need to learn on this earthly trip from the events of our lives. So I'm gonna tell you two stories of things that happened to me and what I learned from them. And the first is a story about, happened about 15 years ago when my partner in life, Annie O'Flaherty, was progressing from regular drinker to an alcoholic and I didn't know how to deal with that because as a teacher of importance I needed to have my environment be peaceful and calm and at first I thought I can fix this I'm the master of fixing everything but any of you who have trafficked in that arena of alcoholism know that there's no fixing it. You have to figure out who you are in the matter. And I decided to take a biblical trip to Death Valley and do three days and three nights of fasting in the desert. And I would get my answer what to do from that experience. It was August. <laughs> so within the first two hours, I'm hanging in at the hotel drinking margaritas. <laughs> the biblical experience went the way of the wild goose. And I pondered and wondered and had no answers, no solutions. And I'm on my way home in my car. I, have a, I had a Subaru out backstage wagon. I'm a photographer and a videographer, so I had all my apparatus on my passenger seat. When I see this beautiful murmuration of birds, so gorgeous. It was early in the morning, and how the light hit when they were in one formation, they were silver, and then they switched, and they were black, and they switched again, and they were white. And it was almost, it was magical what it, what it was looking like. So I pulled off into the breakdown lane, got my video camera out, and leaned up against the front of my hood of my car. and was videotaping, this is a little, noise, was videotaping when all of a sudden there's this huge sound of metal on metal. And I became unconscious. What had happened was a guy who was driving an Econoline van at 75 miles an hour, he was diabetic and his perceptions were off. And he thought I was driving. So he hit my car from behind at 75 miles an hour. So that, of course, mashed my car up, and then my car and I went flying into the hard, scrabble desert dirt. And I ended up in this position underneath my car, f- flat. And I was unconscious for I don't know how long but I suddenly came to and I I look around and I see I see that I'm under my car and I'm afraid I'm afraid I'm gonna die and I I wasn't proud of myself because I was anxious and I And I thought, well, yeah, some kind of spiritual force you are, you scaredy-cat. And I tried to remember stories of different shamans and how they experienced death. And I recall hearing, like, the Native American would go to the top of the mountain and just lay his body down and let death take him. And the eagles would come and do what they do or the Eskimo shaman would lay his body down in the snowbank and let death take him. And so I got myself into that mindset, and, and I said, okay, here I come. And I felt through the soles of my feet I heard this little sound and I felt that I exited through my feet. They were bare feet. My shoes had been blown off. And so there I was out there, out of my body. There was no white light, no tunnel, no relatives. Big black void, silent, calm, very peaceful. And I'm suspended in that beautiful nothingness. And the next thing I hear these voices, oh my God, is somebody there? Is anybody there? Are you alive? And it's like, whoosh, right back in. And I'm under the car. I'm here, I'm alive and I hear their little feet, they're trying to find out, where am I? I'm under the car. So I finally, they come to the car, I see their little skinny legs. They say, wait there. (laughs) Wait there, we'll go get help. And I said, You are the help. (laughs) Just lift up the car. (laughs) No, we can't. We're not strong enough. Yes, you can. Lift up the car now. And the next thing I know, the car gets lifted up. Two arms pull me out, drag me out, lay me on the ground. Then the ambulance comes. Of course, I have third degree burns all over my back. That's why I walk like a drunk. You know, I I've, I've have sustained damage. But look at me, right? So what did I learn from that event? Is all our lives we're taught that help is up there. They were going to go get help from who knows where. And I was going to die. Because they forgot. If it's true, you never know what Jesus said or didn't say, but I believe he said, if I can do it, you can do it. And you can do it in spades. It took some voice to help those guys believe in themselves enough to make that miracle happen that they could lift the car off. I was impaled under the muffler. They lifted it, they pulled me out, they saved my life. Their first response was not that. So what I learned from that is that we need to be reminded that we are the help now. We are the healers and the minute we believe We can do it, we can do it, believing is seeing. The other story, those of you who were here yesterday know, I was kicked out of the convent and had a terrible time, 20 years of agony and angst over it, because it was, I was sure I was meant to be a nun. And I could not get over it. And I resorted to a lot of drugs, a lot of alcohol, a lot of promiscuity. Just went down the wrong path for a long time because I was in a rage. And I didn't know how to channel my disappointment, my resentment, my humiliation that I wasn't good enough to be that kind of servant. So I tried everything you would try. Therapy, therapy, never works for me. I always think the therapist should pay me. Right? So talk therapy didn't work. I tried soul retrieval, all those things. One tries, Reiki, nothing worked. And then the occasion came where the woman who was the head honcho of the community, I lived in a mother house with 400 sisters, and the woman who was provincial director, like the CEO, transferred out of that, and she was back in Syracuse, New York, where I lived. She rotated out of leadership. Now she's teaching math at St. John the Baptist. So... I call her up and I say, I don't know if you remember me. She goes, I tell her my name. She goes, oh yeah, I remember you. I said, but you know, it's been 20 years and I haven't been able to get over that I was dismissed. I've tried everything, but I'm trying to heal my heart and I don't know how to do that. I thought maybe, if you would be my witness and let me tell the story in your presence, maybe that would help. She goes, well, I'd be worth, you know, I'd be happy to try it. So we made an appointment. We're sitting there in a convent parlor, kind of knee to knee. I said, okay, don't interrupt me. Let me tell the whole story, then we'll see. So I started in sixth grade, where a nun saved my life, when I decided to be a nun so I could save other kids' lives who were gay or troubled for any reason. Tell her the whole story from sixth grade to the day we were there. Cried through the whole thing. She didn't interrupt me. And at the end, when I was done, She said, she called me sister. Sister, would you forgive me for the terrible injustice that was done to you on my watch? And I was a bit flabbergasted because I hadn't anticipated any response like that. I was taken aback. And I'm like, of course, I didn't think that was going to be part of the equation. I go, of course, I forgive you for that terrible injustice that was done to me on your watch. And she says, will you forgive the entire community of the Sisters of St. Joseph of Carondelet for this terrible injustice that was done to you by us? I said, yes, yes, I forgive the entire community of the Sisters of St. Joseph of Carondelet for the terrible injustice that was done to me. And all of a sudden, what happened in that moment was like in the sound of music when the light comes through and the music plays and it was an opening of immense magic and mystery that what happened in my brain changed so much that I said to her, oh my God, there's nothing to forgive. I'm grateful that you all gave me the privilege of two years of a monastic life so I could get my footing. And then you let me go because, We all knew it wasn't right. I'm no kind of (laughs) nun. And that caused this heart to heal. And so, I don't know what part of that made it exactly come together. But that whole entire act, the the storytelling, the witness, the compassionate response, my surprise, Grace encouraging me to be aware of those were the best two years in my life. And that's all I needed to know what I know now. And on the drive home, the second part of that awareness popped open and what I understood and could see was every single step I took to create getting kicked out of the convent. Stealing wine from the priest's place, smoking cigarettes, kissing novices, disobedient, talking during grand silence. I caused it to happen. It didn't happen for me, I mean to me, it happened through me and for me. And what I learned from that is that the events of my life, no matter how turbulent, happen for a purpose They happen with my assistance, and they happen so that I will know stuff. So the teaching, the learning, whatever I got from that experience with that sister is that there's nothing to forgive. And that's a really heady thought. It's a very big statement. There's nothing to forgive because there's a whole bunch of people in the room that are sitting on, I can't forgive that. So I can't say it generally. I've never say it to a Holocaust survivor, a kid with leukemia, right? But in my life, there is nothing to forgive. I can see that every event has been for my benefit. And I've been beaten up on the streets, I've been raped, I've had a gun put to my head in a restaurant, part of a theft, right? So there's been a lot of upset, but I am fully cleansed of any instinct to blame because look at me now. It took all that to get me here. And I'm not thinking there's much of a difference between me and you. It looks like there is, but there isn't. So what's the point? Stuff happens, we process it, and then we know something from it. It's like going into the dark mine and coming out with a jewel. And so, at any point when you're ready and have processed your life stories, You can take your turn here. Fred will have you right up here. (laughs) I love you, Bill. (laughs) And the other thing that's part of that work is, and this occurred to me yesterday when the three brave women stood up to read their poems on the spot in five minutes, final draft poems, as good as anything Billy Collins ever wrote. That wants to be made into something. Because stuff happens to us for our own benefit, we process it, we get the jewel, we say I know something, but then what? How do we share it? And I thought, even while they were reading it, I'm thinking, all right. Print that up in a really nice font. Get a piece of, go to Office Depot or Staples. Buy a piece of beautiful parchment paper. Print that poem on it. Sign it. Date it. And that's your Christmas present to people in your life who you love. Like, keep it going. What's the point of me knowing anything if I'm just sitting on it? What's the point of you having experienced all those traumas and tragedies, all that turbulence? that you have experienced and ongoingly are still. I mean, we're happy to be here eating your sacred cookies, but there's a lot of stuff going on in our lives, even in our politics, in our country, even the homeless here. Somebody brought up a suggestion I should praise and thank the, you know, the garbage workers and the trash collectors and the, something else, all those people, the frontline workers, right? That's our world and it's in a sad state. So we're needed now and I'm just set suggesting to you, do I, let me just check my time here, 10, 19, okay, that your, our creative work isn't just to figure out how to survive, it's to figure out how to make something, of what's happened to us. You know, you ask the question, what? So what? Now what? And now what is like, okay, what do I do about this? My mom one day came up to me and she said, she just had her first grandson be born. Suddenly it's a big deal. She never thought of this when her granddaughters were born. But when the grandson is born, she goes, oh, my God, when Chad gets old enough to want to know my stories, I'll probably be dead or senile. I go, well, write a book. And she says, I can't write a book. I said, well, can you write a letter? Uh, Anybody can write a letter. Somehow there was this big distinction. So I said, okay, here, and it was back in the day, early 90s, I had this little small square Mac, Mac computer. I gave her a little disk. I say, okay, go home and write 12 letters to Chad about your childhood. The oldest girl of 14 kids on a dairy farm in northern New York. A lot of stories. Dear Chad, today I'm going to talk to you, today I'm going to tell you about, today I'm going to tell you. So she she started out, and I said, you have to write it on that disc, no handwriting. So she did it all. She wrote it on the disc, but she kept going because it was so easy. It's now 40 stories, 40 letters, and I'm, I knew I was going to publish her book her, I've already designed the book cover. It's going to be printed at Staples and spiral bound. It's a book of her farm, aerial shot of her farm. The book is called "Letters to Chad: Memories of My Childhood." She gives me the disc. We go to I go to Kinko's, Staples, one of those. Get. We printed 25. She took them to the family reunion. Her 13 brothers and sisters say, that's not how it happened. (laughs) And she says, write your own damn book. (laughs) So then after that, she goes, oh, no, I feel guilty because I didn't mention your father. I said, Mom, it's letters from your childhood. You didn't even know my dad, right? So then she goes, I think I ought to write an uh, I ought to write Lee's biography. So that side of the family won't feel bad. So then she takes another six months and does all this research on my father's past, writes the biography of my father. Times and Trials of Lee Phillips, something like that. She never was good titles. And then after that, she goes, no one's going to tell the story of our family reunion if I don't. Because we've been meeting, I don't, every year family reunion for 75 years, whatever. So she does the history, gets all the old photographs, it's all Just photographs on a page from Staples. You can recognize who's who, it is no big deal. So now she's got her third book and I'm getting tired as her publisher (laughs) because I'm trying to write my own books. So I finally said, stop it, right? Find another publisher because this has taken me some time. But right before she died, she was already... I, I had taken her, my manuscript, for no ordinary time on evolutionary spirituality and creative intelligence, something like that. She She reads it and she goes, you really believe in this evolutionary stuff? I go, yeah, I believe in it. I say, remember the time... When you said I should, I went through a militant feminist period where I didn't shave my legs or armpits. Remember the time when you said I shouldn't go to my brother's house unless I shaved my legs because it made him embarrassed when his neighbors came over? She goes, oh God, yes, I'm embarrassed by that. I never should have done that. I go, that's evolution. And remember when you made me promise not to tell dad I was gay because he'd have a heart attack and it'd be my fault that he died? (laughs) Yes, I should never have said that. I said, that's evolution, right? You can notice it happening. And so she started another book called... What I know and how I know it. (laughs) And it was just, you know, stories that she had not told, the more difficult stories of her jealousies with her sister, etc., etc. And there's only one copy of it because she just printed it herself. But it's a treasure of a book. So I'm here to encourage you to think about even if you're young. You know, I was in my 30s when I was living in Syracuse, and Syracuse stage, when they bring an, a, a play to town, they ask people in, in the community to create artwork kind of consistent with the theme of the play and put it in the lobby. And they go, who wants to do it? I said, I want to do it, because they were bringing the play rent which is a gay play. So I created this exhibition called Born Gay. I took all those pictures out of my mom's shoe box, where she kept our pictures, and photographed them, and blew them up in my dark room back in the day. So I had a big pictures of me at age, you know, a month, and it says born gay and then age four, age eight, age nine. And it tells the whole story of what it was like for me to know how different I was, falling in love with my third grade teacher, having a fake boyfriend, all the stuff you have to go through in the 60s and 70s before there was even the word gay so, it was like pervert, homo, leszy, just terrible stuff. So, that was an exhibition that went all around the lobby of Cirque Stage. And when I took it down, I put it in my closet. And there it lived. And I thought, this isn't so great. I should, more people should see it. So, I turned it into a little book just stapled kinkos it's called a chat book five by seven you take your paper put it in half staple it in the middle born gay my mother ended up taking 20 of those books and putting them in the back of her church so it doesn't take a lot you can just do a photo memoir it could be small but When you finally compile and harvest the events of your life, and you have to wait until you get to the point where you're able to say thank you for each one, it doesn't really, it's not very helpful or kind to put out a story that's unprocessed where you still have bitter feelings. But if you get to the point of of grace, and this is why Bill's always haranguing you about the spiritual practice, it's because those moments of silence are the moments of evolution. That time away when you're not near your phone, not near your puppy, not near your grandkids or your kids, That's the time of day when you say, I receive the grace and the grace arrives. It's a love affair with a mystery. And if any of you remember what it feels like to be in love, I have driven through blizzards to be with my beloved. You will go anywhere. Imagine you're in love with somebody and you say, let's meet. And your lover says, sorry, no time. Like you all say, no time. No time for spiritual practice. No time to sit alone quietly for 20 minutes a day. There's the great beloved. You say you're seeking and you won't even have a date. Some kind of love affair. So, it's not an imitation to anything that's arduous. It's an imitation for your own benefit, that in that quiet time, you sit as a satellite dish, and mind at large throws love your way, throws thought your way, that helps you heal your life. And in that gracious encounter, you evolve yourself into the magnificence you're meant to be. That's why we sit quietly for 20 minutes a day. And I had a woman in my workshop, and she was all OCD. I can't do it. I can't do it. I never could sit still for 20 minutes. I say, so what? Sit still for 10. I get a text from her the other day. I'm up to three minutes. It's okay. You don't. You know, when you go to the gym and start lifting weights, you don't start with 500 pounds. You get those five-pound things, right? Start with two minutes. Who cares? It's nobody's business. But any of us who are beneficiaries of great grace like that want you to have it, want you to be in on it, right? It's an invitation. It's not a scolding. It's not, if you don't do that blah, blah, blah. no it's hey, there's magic happening. yeah how do I get it? Sit quiet. Don't talk. Put your phone somewhere else. It's amazing. So you got everything else going on. you got the church you want to worship wherever that church is you can worship before this or after this right? I'm not going to go over there because I don't like the old stuff, right? But a lot of us do because that ser cere- I mean, I'm a Catholic, you talk about ceremony and ritual. You like seeing them dressed up in that. You like the candles. When you hear the words from the text, you just go, ah, Isaiah didn't know. He thought the world was flat. <coughs> so we're forgiving, some of us. But what you've created here tells me you have all the creative genius that's necessary to make a spiritual community of consequence in the middle of Houston, Texas. So why are you holding out and not doing the subterranean work? That's where the magic is. So that's it, my two stories. Two things I know, where the hell? There's nothing to forgive. And you can figure out easily enough how to make your legacy live beyond you. It's easy. And if you don't know how to do it, Bill will have me back. (laughs) All right?
0: Thank you. Well, as Fred, (laughs) I want to say, Jen, thank you very much for this weekend. Thank you all for your support of and for this. I hope you come back next Sunday um, to participate in Ordinary Life. Um, As I said, we're on this new theme of making sacred, the already sacred journey. And for the next number of weeks, it's going to be about how awareness is the path of transformation. And I would really like it if you would come and be um, part of that. I would like it. So Happy New Year is the first time we get to see each other this year. And um, I hope it goes well. And remember this, no matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, You carry precious cargo, so watch your step. See you here next week.